nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is our Greetings and welcome again to An Economy One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. I'm going to skip the usual introductory stuff to my show and get right to my next guest. Joining me now is Stephen Moore. He's currently at Freedom Works as a senior economic contributor, and he's a former member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Stephen, welcome back to An Economy One. It's good to talk to you again. Pleasure to be with you. You know, it's uh, kind of exciting. I uh, supported Donald Trump early, and one of the things I always said on the show was, as a business owner and an entrepreneur, he's going to surround himself with good people. And when he put together the economic team, and I saw you was on the team, as well as several other good people, Stephen Roth, Dan uh, D'Amico, those guys approved my point. And I think he's going to do the same thing with the cabinet now, don't you? I do. I think it's a great um, start on the cabinet. I saw um, that my friend Tom Price, uh, Dr. Tom Price, yes. from, uh, representative from Georgia, who is an expert on the budget and health care, is uh, going to be running the Health and Human Services uh, Division, which is one of the biggest cabinet agencies of all. Uh, he will be in charge of repealing and replacing Obamacare, which is a gigantic task, uh, and there's nobody better to do it. You know, I, I always say I never met a doctor who likes Obamacare, and <laughs> uh, right. he's one who really doesn't like it. And, you know, we have more competition to the system and, and get rid of uh, some of the regulations and, uh, you know, do some medical malpractice reform and, and uh, things like that. We can cover everyone with health insurance, but do it at a much lower cost. Yeah. Now, you worked in the Reagan White House or with Reagan and, and as part of his economic team and witnessed firsthand the economic boon of the 80s that Reagan brought in. And you've, yeah. drawn, you, you've drawn comparisons to President-elect Donald Trump. How do you see those comparing? How do you see the economics under a Donald Trump presidency? Well, first of all, you're exactly right that we saw a big boom under Reagan, but it, it took about 18 months um, of his presidency before the economy really um, shot out of a cannon. Um, but what's really interesting is, um, I think, you know, when you look at Donald and by the way, you know, what did Reagan do? He cut taxes. Mm-hmm. He got regulations off the back of business. He restored sound money. Uh, I don't know if you're old enough to remember uh, 20% mortgage interest rates and yep. 15% inflation, but they were just uh, paralyzing the economy. Um, and... Um, he won the Cold War through a peace, peace through strength um, uh, vision. And I think Trump shares a lot of that. Now, look, Reagan was much more of a free trade guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump is more skeptical of trade. I tend to lean more in the direction of Reagan on that. I think free trade is important, although I do think we need fair trade. I think we need ter- trade deals that are in the interests of American workers, and uh, we can do that. And I, I'm a big believer, by the way, that Donald Trump is right. We can bring jobs and industrial manufacturing jobs back to the Midwest and states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania that have been left behind. Um, but, you know, look, Trump wants you know, think about what we're going to do in the first um, 100 days. And I say we because I was proud to work for Donald Trump, uh, you know, uh, during the campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have the biggest tax cut since Reagan. 
We're going to get regulations, uh, repeal a lot of the Obama regulations that have strangled our businesses. We're going to cut the coal miners back uh, into their jobs. We're going to um, repeal or replace Obamacare. We're going to allow uh, to replace a lot of the Department of Education spending with school vouchers so parents can send their kids to the their uh, kids to the best schools uh, they can. Um, and we're going to downsize government. And you know, if you look at that, that's a very similar. Um, agenda to Reagan. It's interesting. I tried to read all of your columns and everything you write. And one of the things that, that I picked up on, I mean, you're, you're a free trade guy. I'm a free trade guy. And, and I've always felt that competition, no matter where it comes from, is a, is a pretty good thing. But you mentioned that you got kind of a political reality check by being on the campaign trail with President-elect Trump. And tell me a little bit about what you saw out there. And I mean, we're in flyover country. I understand that. But there were some differences that you saw by being out there versus doing all the writing and, and stuff you've done. Yeah, I reach out for right? Yeah. Well, I think it's a good point. I mean, I did meet so many fantastic, great Americans, and I loved being on the campaign with Donald Trump at some points and, and then doing a lot of surrogate events on my own. And, you know, I saw firsthand the um, the economic anxieties of, of workers that, in my opinion, were left behind by Democrats. I mean, Democrats, I wrote a column about a year ago that I you know, started out, when did Democrats stop caring about working class people? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, the radical left in the Democratic Party cares more about climate change than they do about jobs in the industrial Midwest. And that's crazy. I mean, the number one concern of Donald Trump correctly is to be jobs and economic growth, uh, you know, and um, so, look, I think we can we can have for, for like free trade is unquestionably good for the United States in terms of consumers. It, made, it gives us access to, you know, you go to Walmart, you get anything you want for practically 99 cents. But we have to make sure that these other countries are opening up their markets to us. You know, we mark, open up our markets to them. They don't open up their markets to us. We also have to make sure that they're not stealing and pirating our technologies and our intellectual property, which is so um, important to what we make in America. Uh, and finally, we need to see, I believe, a lot of problems with trade that are causing these economic uh, hardships in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, are due to the stupidest tax system known to man. Mm-hmm. We have, we have, you couldn't come up with a dumber tax system than we have. So we basically have a very high tax rate on what we produce here in America, but a very low tax rate on anything that's brought in the United States from another country. So obviously, what, what companies have its incentive to move out of the United States and bring it in uh, tax-free. What mm-hmm. I've proposed to Donald Trump, but I think he's going to move in this direction, I've said, look, Donald, we don't need tariffs. You don't need, what we need to do is fix our tax system. So we're not taxing what's produced here, but we do tax what's consumed here. And I think that's a way of leveling the playing field. And that means, you know, when a, a car comes in from uh, Japan or Korea, there's going to be a, you know, 15% tax imposed on it. But if we produce a car here and sell it abroad, we're not going to tax it. I mean, doesn't that seem to make more sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's one of my concerns in all the uh, preliminary talk is can we bring manufacturing jobs back here? Yes. And yes. that's yes. the critical yes. thing, you know. And, and it, in the it, 80s, it, I think we can do it again um, in, uh, in the um, – in, in the, in the uh, 2010s, I think we can bring these jobs back with a good regulatory system, a good tax code, and uh, you know, hard look at some of these trade deals forcing China to build, buy more of our manufacturing products, our agriculture, and things that they've locked out. And uh, I like the idea of Donald Trump being a tough negotiator. I, I like mm-hmm. that. I think that's going to be good for America. You know, what's his best-selling book? The Art of the Deal. Right. right. This guy right. knows how to make deals. 
Well, and and that once again, as a business owner, yeah. you know, he doesn't do it from a political standpoint. He's not going to negotiate with the motivation of how many votes is he right. going to get in 2020. You've got it exactly right. And I think this is like he knows he's going to be judged uh, two years from now at the midterms and then four years from now when he's up for reelection based on whether he brings jobs back to these regions of the country that have been so hard hit. You know, when I went to Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Indiana, Missouri, states like that, and you said you talked about the recovery, they said, what a recovery. We haven't, mm-hmm. faced, we haven't seen a recovery in our state. Now, look, if you live in Washington, D.C., where I live, you know, if you live in Silicon Valley or, or Wall Street, you've done really well. But there's so many parts of the country that have been left behind. And I think Trump really spoke to those voters. I think it was a cultural and an economic um, rebellion against the policies of the left. And uh, it's one of the reasons I'm so proud of Donald Trump. I mean, he saw something out there in the voters that nobody else saw. Yeah, nobody saw that. You know, one of the things that I look at in my own life, and I understand my life is a little bit different because economics are a little bit different, but my wife and I try to buy American made partly because I want to, you know, support American jobs. But more importantly, I have found that the quality of American manufacturers or American workers is higher than some of the Chinese quality and, and that kind of stuff. And I read something recently, I hope you can elaborate on, that manufacturing in the U.S. also is a big part of our national security. So if if, well, look, if we I mean, make I, stuff I, here. Yeah, I mean, look, I do want, I, I, as I've said to Donald Trump, if we're going to make America great again, we've got to make things again mm. in America. And, and uh, you know, look, a lot of this manufacturing jobs, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of the manufacturing jobs, most of them have been lost because of, uh, you know, technological improvements and robotics. And, right. you know, artificial intelligence is coming more rapidly than people think. And, you know, you go, I remember when I was a kid and my parents took me when I was nine years old in around 1970 to an auto plant in Michigan. And I, you know, it was basically, you know, people doing heavy lifting and, you know, working in grimy, uh, hot, you know, conditions right. and um, really working on the assembly lines. Now you go to the, these plants and it's basically, you know, the people who are working on the lines are the di- uh, the people who are doing diagnostics and uh, people who are doing very skilled work. That, that's the future of manufacturing, but we can do that in the United States. It doesn't have to be done in China and India. Right. Some of it will be, and, and that's fine, but we, we can uh, bring a lot of it back uh, here to the United States if we have businesses investing again, and businesses haven't invested for a long time because they're terrified of what Washington is going to do. You know, while we're talking about that, let's pivot a little bit. And what's your thoughts on President-elect Trump's position on NAFTA and the TPP? Uh, TPP, I believe he's right. It needs to be renegotiated. I hope we can have a trade deal with Asia, uh, but I hope it's one that is in American workers' interests and takes into account, you know, the, the people who uh, whose jobs are, you know, potentially jeopardized. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to see that done, but I'd like to get it done, but in a way that is is not, um, you know, uh, against America's interests but pro America. Uh, NAFTA, look, I've been a fan of NAFTA. I helped uh, in the in the mid 1990s when I worked for a new Cambridge and Dakota. I helped get NAFTA passed. And I think NAFTA has been a good thing for America on balance. It's been a great thing for Mexico. You know, we saw just this week what happens when a country uh, in our region goes communist uh, and socialist and Marxist as happened in Cuba, where Cuba has been a disaster for 50 years. And we need to keep Mexico politically stable and economically strong. And I think NAFTA has helped do that. So, uh, yeah, some parts of NAFTA need to be maybe um, tweaked. But I don't want to see the thing blown up because I think it's been good for the whole continent. 
he's going to be under a microscope for at least his first hundred days. And, and, <laughs> and you know, the media is going to say, where's all these jobs on day yeah. three? You know, they're, they're going to want them there. You've been close to him. You've counseled him, uh, been in those meetings. Is he going to be able to fulfill some of his campaign thoughts of, of rolling back a lot of this uh, regulation that Obama has put in place the last couple of years and certainly his last 60 days or so he's just got the pen just cranking oh yeah yeah is absolutely. he gonna be able you to know, roll I, that I, back I, i've told donald trump you know when the first day he's in office we're going to uh, have a uh, a um uh, put on his his desk when he comes into the oval office uh, you know a stack of executive orders repealing obama's um, uh either illegal or unwise executive orders. And that could include things like the clean power plant bill that's put mm-hmm. so many of our coal miners out of jobs. So yeah, this, this is going to be um, from day one, we're going to be like secretariat just racing out of the gate <laughs> and doing some really big things. And, and you know, now how long is that going to take to affect jobs? I mean, give us, give us a year. I mean, it's going to take about a year for these policies to really take hold. Uh, but then I think you're going to see a boom. I'm very, I'm very bullish on America right now. I'm bullish on our stock market. I'm bullish on the dollar, and I'm bullish on American workers. And uh, you know, we were president for eight years who's put America last. Let's face it; he's been on an eight-year apology tour for all of our quote, you know, transgressions as a country, rather than celebrating America. And, and I believe once we're going to prosperity back to the United States, we're going to export that to the rest of the world, and we're going to see a global boom. I mean, it's been a long time since we've had a real leader, and I think look, Donald Trump hasn't been inaugurated yet; he hasn't done anything yet, so I don't want to get carried away. And I've been right. disappointed, you know, before, but I think this man has. Uh, the spinal fluid uh, and the courage to move forward with policies that will make this country great again. I really believe that. Well, I mean, he's he's the non-politician, and that, and that's yeah, that's exactly. what we've been that's waiting made for. Made all the difference in the world. <laughs> Absolutely, we've been spending a little time with Stephen Moore. He's a former member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board and currently a Freedom Works senior economic contributor. And on Donald Trump's, uh, President-elect Donald Trump's economic team. Stephen, once again, you do great work. I read everything you put out there. Keep up the good work. This has been a true honor for me. I hope we can tap you on the shoulder again soon. Well, right back at you, my friend, and keep doing what you're doing. I mean, your voices of economic sanity really made such a big difference in this election. I think the American people finally saw the fraud of liberalism and socialism and, yes. and adopted for free market economics, which, as my friend Larry Cudlow says, you know, free market capitalism is the best path to prosperity. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You're most Thank kind. You. Coming up next, McDonald's has a great I told you so. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, McDonald's is fulfilling a prophecy of many of us. You remember over the last, I don't know, year or so, people have been out there and the, their cause is fight for 15. Fight for 15. We saw several uh, McDonald's restaurants in New York City where the employees went on strike. They tried striking all across the United States on the same day, and that didn't work very well. But a lot of people did. And a lot of communities like Seattle and San Francisco and and many, many others have adopted a city policy of a $15 minimum wage. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about this, and we know 
that raising the wages, especially by legal measures, will unemploy people and will put businesses essentially out of business. Well, McDonald's has been experimenting with what they call uh, kiosks. They'll have a kiosk in their restaurant, and it's a self-service thing. You punch in what you want, how you want it, slide your debit card or credit card or whatever, and then the food eventually shows up. And they've been experimenting for a while. Well, now they're starting to put them into their restaurants nationwide. And the CEO of McDonald's, a gentleman by the name of Ed Renzi, wrote an article for Forbes magazine where he said, "Uh, I told you we were going to have to do this. We can't afford to pay people $15 minimum wage to work in our restaurants. They just don't have the margins. They can't raise the cost of food. They can't raise the cost of their product to compensate for $15 an hour for people. They can't lower their cost of services, so they're getting rid of people. Now, McDonald's is fortunate in the sense that they have the capital to build these kiosks in their restaurants. Most of us in our businesses don't have the capital. So we have to look for alternative ways, and that may be you know, fewer employees. It may be raising the cost of our product. It may be moving to a jurisdiction that doesn't have $15 an hour minimum wage. Or ultimately, in this worst-case scenario, it means a business. As an employer, as any employer, whatever you pay your employees, you have to make more money per hour than that employee is costing you, or you're going to go out of business. Well, obviously, McDonald's doesn't feel they're getting more than $15 of value per hour out of each and every employee. And that's a shame. It's a shame that it's going to kiosks nationwide because a lot of people I know, I wasn't one of them, but a lot of people I know started their working career at a fast food place. McDonald's comes up quite often, teaches them the work ethic, gets them in the workforce, They learn how to do things, and they build up integrity, credibility, work ethic. So we knew it was coming. It's not like we weren't warned. We were warned, but now it's here, and it'll never go away now. It's going to reduce the minimum wage down to a buck. Those kiosks will still stay. Coming up next, Peter J. Wallison, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, will be joining me. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Peter J. Wallison. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and co-director of AEI's program on financial policy studies, where he researches banking, insurance, and securities regulation. As general counsel of the U.S. Treasury Department, he had a significant role in the development of the Reagan administration's proposals for deregulation of the financial services industry. He also served as White House counsel to President Reagan. Last time we spoke to him, he just got a book out called Hidden in Plain Sight, What Really Caused the World's Worst Financial Crisis and Why It Could Happen Again. Peter, welcome back to An Economy of One. Great to be with you. Thanks very much. I uh, love your writings. I, I did read Hidden in Plain Sight. 
What was the other one? Bad policy. What was bad it? history, worse policy. That's it. Bad Bad history, worse policy. Uh, that, right. that, that was a serious to commitment this. to read that one. That was uh, that was a l- <laughs> that was a lot in there. So uh, uh, there was terrific. Well, I you know, appreciate I, it. I wanted to talk with you a little bit because I've been talking to uh, several writers and experts and people who study this about different things that President-elect Donald Trump has said on the campaign trail and reiterated during his cabinet selection and that kind of stuff. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about was Dodd-Frank. People have focused on the Affordable Care Act, what we call Obamacare. And to me, Dodd-Frank was equally, if not more so, egregious in messing up my life in the financial world and, and the banking industry. What do you think President Trump, a President Trump, is uh, going to do with Dodd-Frank? Well, actually, I'm so happy that you made a reference to Dodd-Frank as more disruptive, more (laughs) troublesome than Obamacare, because all this focus on Obamacare is fine. It's terrible law. But actually, in terms of the effect on all Americans, there is nothing worse, I think, than the Dodd-Frank Act, which was adopted in the same year, 2010, by the Democratic Congress and has kept our economy from growing all this time. So I I do think it's necessary to look at it. Now, as to Trump, happily, uh, lately, not only did he say during the uh, campaign that he wanted to get rid of Dodd-Trump, get rid of regulation, but even after he has now been uh, elected, of course not yet in the presidency, he has been saying Uh, regularly that he's focusing on regulation as one of the most serious problems Mm -hmm. with the U.S. economy right now, and he's completely right about that. You know, Dodd-Frank, there's so many aspects to that. One of the things that I grabbed a hold of early was the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and I I always forget his first name. I think it's Richard Cordray. Is that the guy? Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. And it always bothered me from the beginning – because that was set up where he was accountable to no one and his budget came out of the Federal Reserve. And he That's knew right. it. He knew it. He had yeah. no problem poking <laughs> you right in the eye with that. And uh, That's right. recently we had some court movement on uh, his role and the protection of it, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Actually, there was a really major decision uh, by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, which is probably the second most important court in the country. And they they ruled that uh, his appointment, his office was unconstitutional because he was appointed to office without uh, any ability of the president in power to remove him from office at any time. And that's one of the things that the Constitution has always required, that the pre- every officer of the government should be removable by the president if the president wants to remove him. That assures policy consistency between the elected person, the president, and what the various officers of the government do. Uh, And he cannot be removed um, uh, except uh, by, uh, in case he does something wrong. Um, But he can't be removed for simply policy reasons, and as a result, his his entire office is really unconstitutional. That's what the court held. Yeah, now, Dodd-Frank, I mean, the, I, I don't know if it's all Cordray 
or other parts of Dodd-Frank, but they've really, really stuck their nose in areas of the economy that I can't even believe Christopher Dodd and Barney Frank anticipated sticking their nose in as far as, you know, racial quotas on car loans and and payday loans and and uh, uh, classifying things too big to fail. And I mean, it, it, it really was a, a genie out of the lamp, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's been disastrous, really, for the economy. It's one of the great unrecognized disasters. Because, for example, um, they had a regulation on mortgage lending. Mm-hmm. It was with explanatory material. The regulation was 1,000 pages long. <laughs> now, to comply with that regulation, a small bank would have to have a brace of lawyers and a bunch of, of um, uh, people, compliance people, to watch what the bank is doing in every case to avoid being charged with a violation of the regulation. That has caused many banks banks to withdraw from mortgage lending mm-hmm. because they can't afford to, to comply with this regulation. That's, it's hidden mostly for most people. They don't really understand what is going on. But when a thousand paper, a thousand page regulation lands on your desk and you're the president of a small bank, you've got to say, well, there's just no way. There's no way I can stay in this business. Um, So it's, it's had a major adverse effect on things like mortgage lending. Yeah. As with most pieces of legislation, I got to believe Dodd Frank and this this mortgage thousand page mortgage thing is illustrative of this. There's no way to be compliant. I mean, I, right. I, I got to believe on page one hundred it says one thing, and on page five hundred it says exactly the opposite. <laughs> That's you know? entirely possible, but who would know? Who would Even know? I haven't read it. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting point because I got some good friends that are presidents of community banks, and they really mm-hmm. feel that that Dodd-Frank is is destroying the community bank concept. And also, we have tracked over the, the last several years on this show, small businesses and new business startups. And we've seen yeah. a, a very strong downward trend of new businesses and small businesses, that kind of stuff. How much of that can we attribute to Dodd-Frank? I think a great deal of it. Um, it used to be that banks, community banks, that knew the people in their community, knew how they, uh, whether they were honest, whether they met their obligations and so forth, would make loans to people who were starting up businesses without having, say, audited financial statements and other very um, expensive things. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result of that, people could start businesses. And it turns out that startups are about 20% of all of the new employment in this country, just startups alone. So when startups start to decline, and they have substantially, the Wall Street Journal just reported a couple of weeks ago that startups are at a 20-year low, um, the reason for that is all of these new restrictions on banks, and people will go to them to try to start a company, and they'll be told, no, I'm sorry, I just can't, um, I can't make a loan to you unless I can get audited financial statements or right. other assurances that um, your business is going to succeed. Well, that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that turns off uh, the growth elements of our country, which start 
at the grassroots level with mm-hmm. startups. Yeah, my dad was a uh, entrepreneur and owned multiple companies. And, and from the time I was little, he always told me, he says, you'll know when you're successful, when you can walk into the bank and borrow a million dollars on your signature. And yeah, that's right. Today, you can't hardly put a signature on the back of a check and have a bank take it. <laughs> Certainly not a million yeah. dollar check. They'll they'll write up an yeah. SAR on you and you're going to be in trouble, you know. Now, that that being said, can a President Trump, not necessarily on day one, although I'd like to see that, can he wipe Dodd-Frank off the face of the earth or is that going to take 60 votes in the Senate? Is he going to chip away at the peripheral and get some of more bad stuff out or what's going to happen? Well, I think a lot of things can be done uh, regulatorily or or by the president and by his administration through regulation. Let's take, for example, what is happening with small banks. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of that is not specifically in Dodd-Frank, but it comes from the fact that the, the entire financial crisis was blamed on a lack of regulation of the financial system. That's what Dodd-Frank was about. It was the wrong idea for what caused the financial crisis. We know, I think, as you read in my book, the financial crisis was actually caused by government housing policy. But the Democrats, when they came into office, blamed the crisis on lack of regulation. And so many of the regulators, especially the financial regulators, have now been much tougher than they need to be in order to uh, fulfill what, in effect, Congress wanted them to be, and that is much tougher in regulating. So they have taken uh, rules and restrictions that once applied only to the largest banks and applied them to the smallest banks. As a result, they have been complicit in making it much more difficult for small businesses and startup businesses to get loans. What Trump can do is he can tell the controller of the currency, the new chairman of the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, lay off the small banks, please. Uh, Focus your attention on the larger banks where the difficulties are. Stop pressing down on these small banks, which are having a terrible adverse effect on the growth of our economy. So that much he can do. Yeah. To me, there there always seems to be a, a free market solution to some of these if we can get the regulation out of the way. Like I said, I've talked to some of these presidents at community banks, and these regulators move right in. And one bank I I am very close to, more regulators showed up for a three-week audit than they had employees. (laughs) You know, I mean, they they got like 13, 14 employees, and 18 regulators showed up, you know. And uh, yeah, well, you know this as much as I do, small bank, they have to pay those regulators to show up. So uh, it's, one, it's twice as bad. One of my colleagues uh, about a year ago wrote a paper showing that uh, the regulators were paid more than the chairman of the banks that they're regulating. <laughs> I can believe that. I can believe that. That's incredible. We've been speaking with Peter J. Wallison. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and co-director of AEI's program on financial policy studies. Also author of the book Hidden in Plain Sight. Great book. It was out earlier this year. Uh, What really caused the world's worst financial crisis and why it could happen again. Very readable. I really enjoyed it. Peter, I got about three more pages of questions for you. I hope we can give you a call again sometime soon and continue the discussion. 
Love to do it. I really appreciate your call. Thanks, you, Gary. Thank you so much for your time. Have a good evening. Up next, we're starting to see President-elect Trump do some presidential things in uh, keeping jobs here. We're going to talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, this last week, we've seen some, I guess, what we could call presidential action out of President-elect Trump. Now, during the campaign, he promised that he would do everything he could to keep jobs here in the United States. And companies that outsource their jobs to other countries, he was going to put a 35% tariff on those products coming back in. Now, when I heard this, I knew that wasn't going to happen. I understand the sentiment. I understand the concept. But it's just not going to happen. He's not going to put a 35% tariff on American-made products that are made outside the country or American company products that are made outside the country and brought in. But this week, uh, it was announced uh, a week or so ago that Carrier, which is a manufacturer of air conditioning and heating units, uh, long-standing American company it was created in this country, housed in Indiana, which is where um, Vice President-elect Pence is still the governor until the end of the year or something. They were going to move a couple thousand jobs to Mexico. And uh, so President-elect Trump met with them. And uh, very shortly after that, this week, it was announced that Carrier was going to keep a thousand jobs here. Now, Carrier is owned by United Technologies. United Technologies is the seventh largest provider of uh, military goods to the U.S. government. Now, when I heard this, that Carrier was going to keep a 1,000 jobs in Indiana, my first thought was, okay, they met with President-elect Trump. I want to make sure, I want to see why did they stay. And I was hoping that they stayed because President-elect Trump and Vice President-elect Pence convinced Carrier that, look, hang around. Once we get in office, we're going to get rid of a lot of this regulatory burden on you as a company. We're going to lower taxes for corporations across the country, and we want you to stay. I was hoping that was the case. It was not the case. What happened was Carrier received about $7 million worth of state-financed incentives. So taxpayers in the state of Indiana paid money to have Carrier keep 1,000 of the 2,000 jobs they were going to ship to Mexico. That's disappointing for me. I'm disappointed in... President-elect Trump for doing that. That's just more corporate welfare payments. It gives, the only incentive that gives is for other companies to announce, hey, we're going to Mexico. How much will you give us to stay and hold us hostage? The only good thing about that in my mind is that it's Indiana state taxpayer money and not federal taxpayer money at this point, but it harms us all. Now, these incentives 
of corporate welfare and crony capitalism financed by Indiana taxpayers, I think sends absolutely the wrong message. We are not draining the swamp if we're writing checks that belong to the taxpayers, regardless of its state or federal. We are not draining the swamp. We, we are just scooping up the water and sipping it like every other administration has done. If you have to pay these people to stay, then they won't stay. Mark my words. I'll give you a prediction. I'll give you a prediction. Within three, maximum four years, Carrier's going to move that plant and those people, those jobs, to Mexico anyway. Or they're going to threaten to do it because the 700000 a year just isn't enough. Just isn't enough. We need more money. Yeah, that was a lot of money back then, and we helped you out as president-elect Trump, and you got a lot of headlines from it, a lot of pats on the back, but we need more now, especially if you're going into uh, a new election. So I'm very, very disappointed that this is the game. This is the game. I guarantee you another thing. Within a very short time, you're going to start seeing other companies say they're going to move to Mexico unless somebody gives them an irresistible incentive to stay. Corporate blackmail, whatever you want to call it. Now, Carrier came out and said, this agreement in no way diminishes our belief in the benefits of free trade, in theory. What the heck does in theory mean? Free trade? That's not free trade. They're getting paid with somebody else's money. Somebody put a gun to some of those taxpayers in Indiana, put a gun to their head and said, give us your money and we'll give it to these people so they'll keep jobs here. Now, I think Carrier ought to keep the jobs in the United States. I think an American company ought to make an American product in America. And if it costs a little bit more, then it costs a little bit more. But if their product costs a little bit more because they're here, then only the consumer that buys the product pays the money, and they do it voluntarily. You put a gun to my head, take my money, give it to Carrier, so their product can be a little cheaper for everybody? Well, that doesn't mean anything to me because I'm not buying the product. So this is legal plunder. Legal plunder. How do you identify legal plunder? Legal plunder can easily be identified by one citizen, carrier, benefiting at the expense of another taxpayer at the point of a gun. So... In one sense, I'm happy that Carrier's staying in the United States and keeping the jobs here. In another sense, I'm greatly disappointed because it's just another example of how big government works with other people's money. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.